guess we're back to kind of a regular production schedule after uh, people might have noticed a few pre-records over the last uh, last no. few weeks. <laughs> we would never stoop to that. But I mean, as a result, uh, you know, we're, I think we're going to need to uh, we're going to need to catch up on the news a little bit, folks. Sorry, sorry, I have to sorry, I have to interrupt. Um, the Falkland Islands have just been invaded. <laughs> oh man! Uh, but no, there's some like news that's just like I don't know, it might be a week old or whatever. But there's various things I want to talk to you about uh, because we didn't have a chance to record. Uh, so you seen the coronation? <laughs> <laughs> that was actually seen this. Heard about this? Fortunately, was not one of the things I wanted to talk about. Um, I mean, I, I thought I thought he looked really cute in his little crown, <laughs> his little robe. Man, I w- it was wasn't like, it funny? It's like a mon- Yes, it's funny. It was like a it Monty Python like, sketch. It looks like when, you took an old man and then like put a funny costume when, on him when they're when they were presenting like what's like the orb of destiny yeah. do you accept and they're giving in these things where it's like this is shit that like you get on a on like a meandering dark souls side quest that has some tie into the pvp and you're like look what i don't know what to do with the sword of equity and justice that's like and fuck the thing he was sitting on i think was called like the chair of agony or the throne of agony because in <laughs> literally i'm pretty sure it was in uh, the legend of zelda ocarina of time there's a, a thing called the stone of agony agony which i think just makes the rumble pack work isn't it funny that because his mother was on the throne for like 70 years like (laughs) you never saw her not look like that Uh and so it never felt quite as acutely ridiculous as suddenly seeing charles like decked out in all this all this garb quite quite because like the last time that this liturgy was performed the monarchy had some kind of like real buy-in and now it's just this attempt to sort of re-enchant the institution and by extension i don't know the country in the world but nobody's buying it anymore yeah so i thought i mean particularly where they're presenting him with the various artifacts and then there's this ludicrous ritual where they're like do you accept and he goes like i accept and then he doesn't even like touch the thing and they just have it in front of him and they like take it away did you see that as part of like the video (laughs) presentations there was a greeting from tom cruise (laughs) like it was tom cruise he was like flying a plane and he was delivered from the cockpit hey i didn't see you there it was like (laughs) i just want to say congratulations Congratulations to my favorite prince, Nay King. It was basically that. And I saw that and I thought, like, shouldn't the monarchy kind of be above this to, like, get a blessing from... Big he... crown, big throne, loved it. I mean, I guess he basically is a head of state. He's the, the king of movies. Well, but this this goes to... I mean, this is what I mean. It's over. Like They, they need to, some of his stardust. Refer to my essay. It's in my it's in my book. Um, it's in the dead center. But, I mean, the one uh, that I opened by referring back to the, uh, you know, the wonderful opening to Mark Fisher's book capitalist realism where he talks about the scene at the beginning of children of men with all the artifacts and you know all these beautiful paintings and bits of cultural paraphernalia in the repurposed battersea power station uh and none of it means anything everything's been desacralized that essay was written on the occasion of you know harry and megan uh you know their departure from the institution and the uh the interview they did on oprah where they basically just looked like well they looked like this because it's what they are they looked like uh, west coast american wealth Harry is going to work at a wellness startup, whatever that is, etc. They're talking about mental health now. He's doing privilege checking about his fucking family's history plundering the world. And yeah, you, it's like the, the coronation of the king and they got fucking Tom Cruise appearing. It's like he's on the level of Tom Cruise now, or rather... A lot lower if you ask yeah, me. Yeah, I, th- I think so, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's over. Private to private, your majesty... You can be my wingman anytime. Anyway, I was not even planning to talk about that, but I'm glad we did. Um, I don't want to talk too much about the CNN town hall with Trump. We don't need to talk about uh, about it as such, but I mean, I think I would like to talk about, I don't know, kind of what it what it represents, because both in the United States and uh, here at home in Canada, I'm feeling something of a kind of, I don't know, there's been a, the, the, the winds have shifted in some kind of a way, in a, in, and I don't think people are quite grappling with it in either case. I'll come to Canada in a second, but first of all, Will, did you watch the CNN? CNN Town Hall? No, of course not. Okay, well, well, I don't know why. Of course not. It's Donald Trump. It's good content. You weren't, <laughs> you weren't, you weren't checking that out? Yeah, you're kind of selling I watched me it on live. It. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. don't, um, I mean, you will be, I suppose, familiar by this point of the sort of meta discourse around it. Like, well, I saw right? Anders- Anderson Cooper's, and, uh, I saw Anderson mm-hmm. Cooper uh, talk about how we can't avert our gaze, you know? Yeah, well, he was doing this, I mean, his defense of it, I thought, was one of the laziest I'd seen, which was, you know, do you just want to hear from people who agree with you? And it's like, yeah, you're really hearing some, like, 
bold outsider thing for being like the former Republican president. And look, I mean, I was talking to uh, I was talking to a colleague about this and, and, you know, they were basically making the point that like, I know the people are saying that CNN shouldn't have, you know, like you can't do an event with Donald Trump. It's like you could say that in 2016, but it's like the genie's out of the bottle now. Like Donald Trump exists. Yes, they gave him a lot of unwarranted attention in 2016. Definitely helped um, launch him because it was it was good for ratings. But, you know, he was the president, etc. The thing is, though, if you actually watch the event, it's very funny because like the network, it, like and all the people defending it are just trying to have it both ways because Caitlin Collins, her, like the way she introduced it was by like basically talking about like, yes, please welcome our next guest he incited a mat like a violent insurrection or blah blah and then it's like you know the anderson cooper defense is sort of being like well you know you got to have interlocutors you disagree with and then also it's like oh yeah this is like a guy who incited a violent coup to overthrow american democracy and it's like is can't... it beyond the pale or not right i mean yeah you can't have it both ways but what i was struck by uh was you know the sort of tactics if you want that caitlin collins was using which clearly again the network trying to have its cake and eat it too by like we're gonna have donald Trump, but we're going to fact check him, you know, and it was so ineffectual. And it really reminded me of 2016. I was just like, these people have learned nothing. Like Caitlin Collins thinks, well, I don't want to pin this all on her, but CNN thinks that having Caitlin Collins say, well, Mr. President, but that's not true. It's not true that the election was stolen and just sort of, you know, proffering these constant sort of gestures towards objective truth as if there's some kind of great mod in the sky, right? As if there's some sort of like objective referee who the people watching will ultimately defer to. And of course, what they're really deferring to, like they think they are the great mod in the sky and they're still laboring under the delusion that the media still has, you know, a type of authority to pronounce on what's true or what's not true that it doesn't actually have. You can be disturbed by that fact, but I think we do need to recognize it. It reminded me of the tick that you've seen creep into a lot of mainstream media outlets, you know, particularly when they're talking about things like, you know, the 2020 election or whatever will be like last week during an interview, Donald Trump repeated the blatantly false lie that the election was stolen. And it's like, I know that they think this is like a course correction from 2016, where they got in trouble for like using passive voice. And then they had all these Twitter dunks, people being like, oh, why don't you say that he's lying? Why don't you say that he's lying? But look, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And like, I'm not saying I, I know what does work, but I know this doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, one might reasonably ask, well, would it be irresponsible to have him say that on the air and then say say nothing, to let it go unchallenged, to let it become more and more, if not in the realm of truth and in the realm of like reasonable debate? I think the only way to do it would be to have whoever's interviewing him actually be really combative. And that's not what this was. Like Caitlin Collins was... You can't just do a passive aggressive that's not true sir well you know she was trying to she was trying to sort of keep her like journalist hat on because that's what the whole thing depends upon it's like well i'm above this right Mm -hmm. we cnn are above this we're just reporting the objective truth or whatever i mean the whole town hall style format was fucking absurd because it was just all these like it was all just republicans and all the questions were like sir how will you keep our borders safe and like ensure that people who enter this country do so you know legally and then donald trump's just like uh we'll Thanks, Janine. That's a great question. Donald Trump had all his like 2016 juice back. And I don't know, man, like this was the same week where there's polling that shows like he would beat Joe Biden if there was a general election today. Joe Biden, there's even polling that suggests he would lose to other Republican primary candidates. I feel like the Democrats are sleepwalking into something very, very unpleasant and ugly. And they're being unbelievably irresponsible right now. You look at the polling in the Democratic primary, the numbers that uh, Marion Williamson, but also that RFK Jr. is getting i mean you know basically on the strength of his name and he's just going out saying we should like destroy the cia or whatever and then you know he's like a vaccine uh, skeptic or whatever but like joe biden yeah he's got like a huge lead in the polls but it's like he's an incumbent president and he should not be having like these these other people should should not even really be i mean they should be polling in like at best in the low single digits there's polls that just a majority of democrats don't want joe biden to run again trump is going to get lots of uh, he's going to generate ratings for the networks there's there's going to just be, you know, a 2016 style media cycle about it. And I don't know, right now, I feel like people are still laboring under the delusion as they did in 2016, where it's like, this country's not going to elect that guy. I mean, come on. 
And I don't know. I feel like everything I'm seeing from sort of the liberal establishment just mirrors stuff we saw in 2016. And uh, that is not a good sign. It does not bode well. Well, speaking of Republicans, I'd like to tell you about a book that I just read. Um, It's called The Long Slide, 30 Years in American Journalism by one Tucker Carlson. Uh, Perhaps you've heard of him. I guess I should preface this by saying uh, I, I hate Tucker Carlson. I despise him and everything he stands for. Can we just take that as a given? Uh, he's a bad person. You think he raises uh, hard truths about <laughs> Wall Street that the elites don't want you to talk about. You know what I love about him? He's an anti-imperialist, <laughs> folks. Yeah, yeah. What I do find interesting about Tucker Carlson is before he became the Tucker Carlson we know today, he wanted to be a magazine journalist in the Tom Wolfe vein. Uh, he was very influenced by the new journalists. There's an essay in this collection that he wrote, a tribute to Hunter S. Thompson, who uh, was a hero of his, believe it or not. And what surprised me about the book is that 60% of it I quite liked. He was at his best when he was writing these long, detailed and textured profiles of people like Ron Paul, Al Sharpton, James Carville, quite nuanced, full of colorful detail. The prose is quite good. He's at his worst when just writing, you know, opinion pieces or, you know, anecdotal type things. So these are from sort of when exactly? Oh, um, I mean, the early 90s. A lot of them 90s? are a lot of them are late 90s, late 90s. early 2000s. Which Man, I, I can't wait to repeat the same arc where like 25 years from now people are going to be doing a podcast and they'd be like oh man i was reading this book called the dead center you know that that guy who's like that you know liberal demagogue on msnbc who says all that dumb shit you know he used to be really good i mean for your sake i hope that works out for you i think that would be a very lucrative path to follow my i mean my equivalent to all of tucker carlson's like fake populist shit will be i'll be doing keith olbermann how dare you sirs and i'll, I'll ride that to the top So the worst part of the book is that there were these two articles that he wrote for the Weekly Standard, you know, separated by a year or so. The first one, there was no point to it other than um, he he picked up a a hitchhiker in Washington, D.C., who claimed that he needed, you know, uh, $100 to, like, fix his car and promised to pay Tucker back. And, of course, he never got paid back, never got a call. And he said, boy, I sure would love to run into that guy again. You know, it just goes to show you can't— Yeah, make him pay the $100 back. Just goes to show you can't trust a hitchhiker. And then— the second article published a year or two later he found this oh he picked God. up the same guy again and this guy gave the same spiel to him and he was able to uh, turn him into the police and uh that's insane uh and the police let him go because i guess they there was no there was no case but then he looked into this random <laughs> this, this random homeless man's background and you know found out that of course he had uh you know drug issues or you know a, a, a battery of problems and then basically the conclusion is well huh, Sure can't trust hitchhikers. You know, that's like <laughs> and and like it's hilarious because it's Tucker, you know, owning himself, basically. Right. Like, well, why did you you, I mean, you really it, thought you weren't going to get scammed? That is I mean, but that is uh, very much, I think, in keeping with a sort of like that is a sort of a house genre for a particular type of right wing publication where the anecdote that's not even particularly interesting on its own terms mm-hmm. that illustrates something. Illustrate, uh, well, yeah, it illustrates some kind of just like cookie cutter conservative, you know, conventional wisdom, you know, like, oh, yeah, people you, are you, animals. Yeah. And you can't trust, you know, poor people or whatever. Yeah. It's a, it's us and them. It's us, the and, civilization versus and, the drifters. And they're poor because they're dishonest. That's right. But the main thing about this uh, this genre is that, you know, you often find a certain kind of conservative writer, like, they're telling you this is a morality tale, but what it's actually revealing is, like, their own malice, except they don't think of it as malice because they're j- he's just like... Well, I got scammed. Like it's for him. It's 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 about honor. It's like that's right. It's like a lesser a lesser being got the better of me, and like I I fucking I tracked him down a year later, and I you know I call I called the cops on him, and it's like you're. A, you're a loser. So those articles occur in the book, you know, just as he was getting me on his side with his uh, da- dazzling profiles of, you know, various people. He had a long profile of George W. Bush, a figure of whom he expresses ambivalence during his primary campaign, uh, written at a time when Bush was becoming the presumptive nominee. And I'm just going to read an excerpt from it because I actually think this is kind of good and almost points to a road not taken for Tucker Carlson. All right, let's hear it. Bush's brand of forthright tough guy populism can be appealing and it is played well in Texas, yet occasionally there are flashes of meanness visible beneath it. While driving back from the speech later that day, Bush mentions Carla Faye Tucker, a double murderer who was executed in Texas last year. In the weeks before the execution, Bush says, Bianca Jagger and a number of other protesters came to Austin to demand clemency for Tucker. Did you meet with any of them? I asked. 
Bush whips around and stares at me. No, I didn't meet any of them, he snaps, as though I've just asked the dumbest and most offensive question ever posed. I didn't meet with Larry King either when he came down for it. I watched the interview with her, though. He asked her real difficult questions like, what would you say to Governor Bush? What was her answer, I wondered. Please, Bush whimpers, his lips pursed in mock desperation. Don't kill me. I must look shocked. Ridiculing the pleas of a condemned prisoner who has since been executed seems odd and cruel, even for someone as militantly anti-crime as Bush, because he immediately stops smirking. It's tough stuff, Bush says, suddenly somber, but my job is to enforce the law. As it turns out, the Larry King-Carla Faye Tucker exchange Bush recounted never took place, at least not on television. During her interview with King, however, Tucker did imply that Bush was succumbing to electioneer pressure from pro-death penalty voters. Apparently, Bush never forgot it. He has a long memory for slights, which is part of the problem with Bush's presentation of himself as a man so comfortably in my soul that he hardly cares whether he wins or loses. Anyone who has reached the Zen master level of self-acceptance he describes would be unaffected by ordinary criticism. It's still pretty easy to get a rise out of Bush. Not bad, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, my main takeaway from from that, and I mean, with some any any kind of like you know Tucker Carlson, the early years things that I see is that you know I think first and foremost he really is just like a ladder climber and an opportunist. This is why he loves Carvel. You know, ultimately yes. he he writes yes. he, he writes a rather scathing profile of Carvel, <laughs> and yet you got to hand it to him. And but the thing is, in his introduction to the profile, he says something like, "I never thought I would have become close friends with James Carvel, oh but." And, you know, I've never made a career decision without consulting with Carville. Like, he writes this profile right. that is painting Carville as, like, a complete phony, a complete flim uh -huh. accurately. Right. And then in the intro, he basically says, well, he's a phony, but uh, he's an honest phony, you know, something like that. Yeah, just, just like just like me yeah, is the implication. There's your important populist voice who's dishing the hard truths that the elites don't like. The guy who's never made a, you know, a career decision without consulting James Carville. The guy who emailed Hunter Biden to ask, uh, uh, you know, dear Hunter, can you get my son, whose name is Buckley, by the way, can you get can you get him into Harvard or wherever, you know, whatever, almost certainly Ivy League institution it was. But yeah, no, uh, Tucker Carlson, his whole present day shtick is even more ridiculous. I mean, forget about, you know, stuff that's uh, as early as what you've read. I mean, just literally his like Bush era stuff where he was just like a completely generic conservative Republican. And then just, you know, he has like enough of a sense for how things are going and how to capitalize on them that when the Trump thing came along, he's like, OK, well, I can use this. You know, I'm going to sort of retcon myself. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm anti-war. I'm the anti-imperialist who just goes on every night and talks about how we need to nuke China right now. I'm anti-Wall Street, except I'm against raising the minimum wage, you know, whatever. The Tucker Carlson discourse actually uh, actually drives me crazy. Well, the worst part of the book is his his new introduction where, you know, the thesis of the introduction and it's signaled in the title, the long slide 30 years in American journalism is basically comes down to, well, this stuff that you're going to read in this book, you can you can write stuff like this now, now that the media has become uh, so liberal. It's, it, you know, mainstream media doesn't have uh, these magazines that I wrote for don't have room for a voice like me, you know, Esquire magazines like that that I wrote for the, the flagship essay of the book, which very obviously indebted to Tom Wolfe's Radical Chic. It's an essay called The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that he wrote for Esquire in 2003 that was about Al Sharpton, Cornell West, and members of the Nation of Islam flying to Liberia to negotiate a peace settlement for a conflict there. In his introduction to that essay, he writes, My first email was to David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker. Al Sharpton in a war zone? It seemed like a no-fail pitch. Remnick wasn't interested. His entire response, not my cuppa. That was it. Fun guy. By the way, it takes a lot of nerve of Tucker to go after George W. Bush for always remembering slights. <laughs> anyway, Mark Warren, my editor at Esquire, had the opposite reaction. Just send us the bill. I don't remember Warren asking a single question, much less mentioning politics. He loved the idea instantly. It's hard to imagine that happening now. A white conservative covering a group of black nationalists in Africa? 
No editor in New York would pay for that story now. It was a different time then, and I'm glad it was. Now, I mean, to some degree, there's, you know, 30% of truth in that in the sense that editors would probably be more conscious about the sorts of people they would get to, you know, write a story about a figure like Al Sharpton or whatever his present tense equivalent is. But, you know, the real reason Tucker couldn't sell this story to Esquire anymore is because he's become Tucker Carlson. It's right. like he's he's the guy on Fox News talking about race war every night, or, or he was. You know, an opportunist of Tucker's caliber knows how important branding is. Yeah, I mean, this is not an original insight by this point, but I mean, so much of the conservative media space is taken, I mean, even at the like the, the uppermost levels where people are getting, you know, I mean, there was the r- ridiculous incident uh, a few months ago where Stephen Crowder was offered a $50 million fucking podcasting contract by Ben Shapiro. And he was like, no, not good enough. And, you know, some other things have happened with him since. Uh, or there was the thing the thing with Project Veritas where, uh, you know, it turned out that O'Keefe had been wasting all this money, like so much so that even the fucking board at Project Veritas was like, why is he spending all this money making like music videos and stuff like that? And I mean, you got this like Tucker Carlson example that you've put on the table where it's like, well, I couldn't write this in Esquire now. And you make the good point that it's like, well, yeah, that's because you're Tucker Carlson. You couldn't write it, but somebody else absolutely yeah, could. Yeah, right. With, with the same politics, by the way. Right, like, right. Like fucking Tom Wolf, your hero, if he were still alive, he would be able to write that. He's as conservative as you are, but he doesn't brand himself that way. Right. I mean, it's, it is really rich. Uh, yeah. I mean, I have two things to say about this. One, it's very rich uh, when, you know, conservative media people make this argument when you can just like pick up, you can look at the opinion section of the You'll New York Times. You'll find anti-BLM you got articles Brett Stevens, You got, you know, David yeah. Brooks. I mean, just today there's an insane article by the conservative writer David French about uh, the Jordan Neely situation. I mean, their sort of basic contention that's like, oh, you can't say this in the, in the liberal media. It's literally not even true. The other thing is, and I think this is an important point, right? I mean, you know, you mentioned the Tucker Carlson is like friends with James Carville or whatever. So much of the conservative media is parasitic on the liberal media because it's it's fueled by a sense among many of its leading personalities that this is something I've been rejected from and I'm going to spend the rest of my life crusading to get back at these people for rejecting me. And so within that dynamic, it's like you can have people that work at what are effectively giant corporate media outlets that are more profitable often than their liberal competitors. But what they're still angry about is that they don't have like institutional validation from, you know, whatever. Choose your, you know, liberal cultural bet noir, Hollywood, the legacy newspapers, Esquire magazine, whatever it is. It can seem like a kind of a, I don't know, just a cheap dunk or, you know, something that's too easy, you know, something where you're just pathologizing parts of the right. But I think particularly if we're talking about media figures or kind of conservative cultural figures, I think it's pretty apt and it's important to understanding the the impulse that is often fueling this kind of thing. Well, we were talking earlier about the uh, what for me feels like anyway, the vibe shift in, um, in you know, or the, the shifting of the winds in the United States, but also here in Canada. Um, I watched recently parts of I stress I did not watch all of it because even I'm not that much of a pain pig. But the recent Liberal Party of Canada convention. And I don't know, just to just to kind of set the scene a little bit, Will, I want to show you a few seconds of the speech that Justin Trudeau made. We care about reconciliation. We care about justice. It has never been more clear that everything is interwoven. But again, conservative politicians just don't get that. They don't connect the dots. They either say investing in Canadians is a waste of money or that our policies are too woke. Too woke? Hey, Pierre Polyev, it's time for you to wake up. I mean, so that should give you a flavor um, of, you know, the whole liberal convention. Also, 
uh, you know what the next election is going to be. Boy, I can't, I can't wait to have like we're get, the say the stage is getting set for like the dumbest airsats American culture war, but here in Canada as the next election because I mean you saw Trudeau doing it there where like woke just means like yeah what woke is good which and it means whatever we're doing and in you know uh, the hands of the Conservative Party now. Like woke is just a generic signifier for things that are bad. So the new passport redesign uh, is woke. Oh, we, uh, we should explain that for oh. for American listeners. You see, uh, <laughs> we we've had passports in Canada that for the last however many years, every page has had as its backdrop a significant figure or moment in Canadian history or icon. So like Terry Fox or what are, what are you know some airplanes or I don't know some <laughs> some bomber jets. Well, or... the fact that you don't know, I think, is is actually like worth pointing out here because it's like not something you notice. I don't I don't right. sit by the fire at night, you know, perusing my passport, you know. <laughs> Being like, ah, what a history we've had. And I'm so I'm so happy that it's commemorated in this thing that I take on stressful, you know, trips abroad. But yeah, there's a new passport that's coming out that we're all gonna get that does not have those pictures. Yeah, whatever. So, you know, the conservatives are literally tweeting like George Orwell quotes about like he who controls the past controls the future and stuff. Um so yeah, everything's woke like the stuff that the liberals are not doing about climate change, uh, but pretending they are, that's woke, you know, carbon taxes are woke, whatever. So this is the state of things. It's so, so fucking dumb. But the liberal convention, I mean, you know, we're talking about the CNN town hall and how it felt like being transported back in time almost with this, you know, very ineffective media shtick and just Donald Trump literally just scoring points by like just beating up on CNN, on CNN. This liberal convention, I mean, I cannot stress enough how unbelievably out of touch everything was. You got the guy who built a cloying international brand as like the woke you know, woke epic prime minister uh, who it turned out had done blackface more times than, you know, he cared to put a number on in case other photos come out. And like the the narrative that he's embracing, the narrative frame he's embracing is, yeah, yeah, damn right, we're woke and you need to wake up. Just this like, you know, and look, the term, obviously, one of the reasons why any discourse around this is always so fraught is because the term just means it's such a fluid term. I'm not saying this to reopen the Pandora's box about any of the you know the debates that are uh, associated with this but what i would say is if there's a version of quote unquote wokeness that people hate you can probably find it in a guy like justin trudeau i mean literally like a guy who grew up with a trust fund and you know has a famous last name like literally finger wagging at you and telling you to be woke this convention is happening you know people's grocery bills are like there's like 30 percent inflation on food yeah. uh you can't afford Don't i know it brother. you can't afford to live like people can't afford to live in you know major cities in canada and you know it's i mean it's crazy like this was the big epic mic drop moment i mean to say nothing the fact that you know you saw trudeau's speech you saw what his face looked like i don't know who goes for this i mean i've spent more time watching this guy and listening to him than i think even a lot of the people who like him like intellectually i can understand what his appeal is but i just can't i mean i realize it's not for me i don't know how grown adults sit through this presentation this unbelievable sort of mannered and sanctimonious delivery he has and well, they I, think I mean, this is a guy this is this is our guy I mean we are talking about 35% of the country that says that it, it is a minority <laughs> proposition right now okay well, that's true it is a minority proposition and he is quite unpopular but I mean in 2015 you know between about you know late 2015 and I don't know sort of 2017 this guy was like globally viral everywhere he went he was just yeah. making like let a thousand pieces of content bloom yeah I mean, in a moment when Donald Trump was in the news every day, I guess this this guy. I was you know. yeah, that that was a big part of it. Um, now I would be remiss if I did not mention the other signature event of this. Uh, and by the way, this is all happening when this is the same weekend as the coronation. Okay, and on day two, Justin Trudeau couldn't be there because he was off to see the coronation of His Majesty. So uh, Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Finance, Christia Freeland, she took over for the second most important event of the convention, which was an onstage conversation 
with Hillary Clinton. Okay? <laughs> I don't want to belabor this too much. The whole thing was ridiculous. But, you know, the MC gets up and, like, you know, spins this whole thing as, like, you know, Christy had decided to call up one of her pals and, you know, to come on stage. She said, do you want to come on stage for a chat with 4,000 of my friends? And it's like, only our Christia could do that. It's like, yeah, okay, what, I mean, what actually happened is, like, some uh, junior staffer called her speaking agency and was like, we'll give you $100,000. I'm sure that's what happened. I don't know that, to be clear. I'm almost certain that's what happened. I think that's how you get Hillary Clinton. The whole conversation was just, I mean, maybe generously you could say it was like something you could imagine from 2017 as opposed to 2016. It was all this Hillary warned us shtick. You know, Hillary was kind of making me like her a little bit because Christia Freeland was actually like, I think, talking more than you should if you're interviewing Hillary Clinton. And you could see Hillary was getting kind of irritated because she's like, <laughs> I'm the main event. I'm Hillary Clinton. What are you doing? Yeah. Uh, but Christia Freeland was doing stuff like, I don't know, mentioning something bad about Donald Trump, you know, something he did or whatever. And then she would turn to Hillary Clinton. She's like, I'm sorry that you were right about that, that you're so smart that you were right about that. The whole thing, I mean, just unbelievably sanctimonious. And Freeland at one point was saying something about like, Secretary Clinton knows, you know, that when, you know, someone like Pierre Polyevra says we should fire the governor of the Bank of Canada, we should take that seriously. I don't know. Just knowing this event took place is just, this is when I like Canada the least, you know, like Hillary Clinton, uh, pretty passe brand yes. you know even even among democrats mm. in the u.s well right exactly even even you know but not our liberal party apparently. even clinton partisans have kind of kind of moved on for the most part yeah 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 yeah, yeah i mean it's wild and i mean it just again speaks to how out of touch this whole thing was the last thing i'll say about this is i mean we're in store for a really uh, weird and frustrating election i mean the polling is such right now i mean the liberals are really i was i was watching uh, nick nanos the pollster I watched an interview with him yesterday. And I mean, in his tracking polls, the liberals are down to 27%, which is getting in that range where like when they're just a few points ahead of the NDP. And, you know, if that happens in the context of an election, which we're still quite a ways out from an election, probably. But if that happens in the context of an election, like they really are in trouble because if you live in Canada and you get approached, I mean, I've never had liberal canvassers come to my door in Toronto and say anything other than you need to vote for us to stop the conservative. They do this and they do it because it's effective. And, you know, I've canvassed for the NDP and you meet these voters who are they're like, well, I like your person better, but I'm not going to vote for them or whatever. It's incredibly frustrating. Why are the conservatives making gains? Well, I do think the conservative party under Pierre Polyevra, he's one of these guys who I think, you know, has an unfounded reputation as a populist, if you want. Um, you know, I don't think we should exaggerate how politically innovative he is too much, but he is doing something very effective, which is he's constantly talking about house prices. He's talking about food prices. I mean, He's talking about all kinds of other stuff that's really stupid, like the passport controversy or whatever, which honestly, even by the standards of right wing culture war feels pretty like low effort. Like they just plugging this in because there wasn't anything else and they need there's a whole like apparatus of outrage and content creation that depends on this. So you got to have something. But he's just talking about, yeah, people's energy bills and things like that. And I do think this is a little bit of a deviation for Canadian conservatism. I don't think Stephen Harper really talked this way very much. And I don't know, this just this common, very commonsensical thing of like, I mean, all of his policy prescriptions are just the bog standard right wing stuff. But the rhetoric is certainly different. And I do think it's working. And it's especially working because the liberals are striking the posture that they're striking, which is just this like incredibly sanctimonious one where it's like, yeah, if you don't like us, it's because you're not part of like the virtuous elite who are the natural, you know, rulers of the country. And people really, really hate that so much of the liberal brand if you want, has just been tied up in the personality of Justin Trudeau. He said he's going to fight the next election. They don't have a lot of bench strength to replace him. I mean, people talk about Christia Freeland. I don't think she'd be uh, very effective. Various other people they could try, but they've built their entire brand around Justin Trudeau. And I think because the Liberals won this big majority government in 2015, I mean, maybe people are just starting to clue into the reality that Justin Trudeau may actually be presiding over the kind of continued 
continuation of a sectional decline of the Liberal Party, which is globally one of the most successful governing parties, like in the history of mass suffrage. The Liberals are only in power. And, you know, I mean, the Liberal Party federally is officially distinct from the provincial Liberal Parties, but not, nevertheless, they share a lot of the same people. The Liberal Party is only in power in Newfoundland and Labrador right now. The former leader of the Liberal Party of Alberta is telling people to vote for the NDP in the Alberta election. There are a bunch of federal by-elections coming up. I don't think, you know, governing parties don't do well in by-elections at the best of times. I don't think the Liberals are going to do great in a lot of these by-elections. And the fact is, you know, the Liberal Party has been, it's been declining for decades in a lot of the areas of the country where it used to be able to count on support, you know, dependably. There was a big piece uh, in the Globe and Mail by the National Affairs Correspondent Jeffrey Simpson the other week. I didn't really agree with his analysis of the situation, but I do think it was interesting, you know, his, his observations about the extent of liberal decline. And I really do think, again, people are too distracted by other things. They're too worried about the problems that are right in front of them. But I mean, I think it's possible we are heading towards, we're kind of sleepwalking uh, into some kind of realignment election. And, you know, I made my words, but uh, I could not shake that feeling watching this very bizarre spectacle of the liberal convention unfolding the same weekend as the coronation and Justin Trudeau telling Polly Everett, looking straight at the camera, you really have to see it to get the full effect, looking straight at the camera in this very artificial way and delivering this canned line about you need to wake up all that happening while while groceries are 35% more expensive than they were, you know, a year and a half ago or whatever. I could not shake the feeling. We're headed towards something. Never give up, never surrender. From out-of-work actors... By the sons of Warvan, I shall avenge you. ...to outer space heroes... You will save us! Ah! We are actors, not astronauts. DreamWorks Pictures invites you to bravely go... Hi, little guy. Where no comedy has gone before. Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Galaxy Quest, rated PG. Starts Saturday, December 25th everywhere. Our movie on this episode was voted on by our superdelegate patron tier. Uh, again, patreon.com. Shifts, this is gonna this is going to be a bit of a probably lighter conversation than what's preceded. Uh, patreon.com slash Michael and us. We do have a, first of all, extra episode every week. You've already heard that, folks. But we do have a, a patron tier, the superdelegates who can uh, nominate and vote on movies. And uh, for some reason or other, they picked Galaxy Quest for this episode. The 1999 comedy starring Tim Allen and Sigourney Weaver. We will talk about every Tim Allen movie on this podcast <laughs> at some point and this one is better than most i think it's fair to say yeah i mean just to set the stage a little bit i need to i need to clear the ground by saying this is a beloved childhood favorite of mine that we were like this was i hadn't seen this movie for 20 years i loved this movie i was obsessed with it for months and you know being i mean how old was i when this came out about like 10 years old i i hadn't seen star trek yet i mean i guess i'd seen it when i was like four when my parents watched star trek the next generation when it was first airing but my tastes weren't developed enough to understand really that this was like satire so i just kind of received it as like a cool space movie and watching it again was pretty incredible like understanding a lot of the the reference points and kind of the the source material that it's riffing on and just understanding that it like it is it is I mean it's it's a it's a loving satire but it is a satire. Yeah, I saw this movie theatrically when I was I think pretty much the same age as you and then not again until today. I thought it was all right then, I think it's all right now. Uh, I saw I remember I would go further and I'd yeah. say I think it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. I saw it with my dad who was a Star Trek fan. My dad I think saw pretty much every episode of Star Trek up him, and him up, and me both. Yeah, up until <laughs> Up to and including Enterprise, I think. I've seen Enterprise, yeah. Um, and may maybe not beyond that. Although mm -hmm. although maybe, I don't know. Well, you know, it's. I'm actually glad that you brought up, if you want, late period Star Trek. I mean, by this point, Enterprise, which was the sort of prequel starring Scott Bakula that came out in the, uh, in the early 2000s, that's pretty far back now. Like more, I mean, so, sort of similar to what's happened with Star Wars, where it's just innumerable spinoffs and there's like a volume of stuff that you can't even process anymore. And a lot of it's not very good. I mean, I think it's interesting, given some of the stuff that exists now, the way that Galaxy Quest, I think pretty effectively manages to sort of like it kind of gestures at these things like there's there's things.
things that if you're like a real head, you will notice like a very soft callback or reference to something like when Tim Allen is fighting the rock monster and the guy asks him like, can you fashion some sort of rudimentary lathe? You know, I mean, there's the episode that I guess has become a meme because it's sort of bad where William Shatner fights the Gorn. It's like 1967 episode, I think called Arena, just things like that. But Unlike some of the stuff that's being made now, I don't feel that it's being done in this kind of annoying fan service way. Like, the film isn't winking at you, and they're, they're not really direct references to begin with. Like, it's not like when we watched, you know, the Star Wars, whatever the new trilogy is called, the sequel trilogy, where I just felt like, and I can't enjoy those movies on any level because they're just, hey, I remember this. This is that thing, you know? Hey, uh, do you remember that, like, throwaway line from Star Wars where Lando Calrissian talks about his little maneuver in the Battle of Tanad. Well, now we're going to make a whole movie where there's going to be a scene where we're going to show you. Bullshit. So this movie, I think, avoids a lot of those traps and it gets much better results, in my opinion, for it. Well, it's a satire. It's not a brand extension like those movies are. By the way, I saw, I once saw the guy who played the Gorn at a comic book convention. Really? Yeah, yeah. He was signing autographs. That's uh, awesome. At, and it just goes to show, like, if you have, if you have any role on those three seasons of Star Trek, you know. It's pretty legendary TV, that's, man. That's money in the bank. Yeah. You can you can have that forever. Yeah. Um, so, sorry to digress on this, but Will, can I ask you, like, what Star Trek have you actually seen? Have you seen any of the original Star Trek or uh, well, Next I, Generation? Uh, or? When my when my late father was ailing, we actually watched a lot of the first season of Star Trek, and I enjoyed it very much. I, I think it's I think it's really good. Uh, That's you know, my opinion. But before that, I had seen scattered episodes right. here and there, but right. but no, I, I I quite like the <laughs> William Shatner Star Trek. Every episode, uh, you know, a, a tight little morality tale. There, there's uh, some there's some really good ones where even like despite the famously corny production values like I don't know to me I, I feel like they're able to have real dramatic impact and and occasionally be rather profound I've seen a majority of the movies right uh, you know all the all the big ones like the original series movies yeah yeah, yeah. I've seen I've seen you know wrath of Khan and undiscovered yeah. country right. and all the all the right. ones that people like right you know I, I saw nemesis in the theater you know it's funny like at some point we're gonna have to do a proper treatment of Star Trek because I mean I don't know it's been one of my favorite things since, uh, well, since shortly after I saw Galaxy Quest, age 10. But every time I think about what would be a good episode, I think of, like, the bad ones. So, like, obviously, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, the one directed by William Shatner, which apparently when William Shatner saw Galaxy Quest and he saw the thing with the rock monster, he got mad because apparently he wanted to have a rock monster in The Final Frontier and they wouldn't let him. Wow, he didn't get mad at sort of Tim Allen's very barely veiled portrayal <laughs> yeah, yeah, of him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Tim Allen character who's like his whole thing is that he's actually like really vain and self-important and is like the hack compared to the Alan Rickman character right. who, <laughs> who is sort of sort of a, a, a mix. Patrick Stewart composite yeah kinda... Patrick Stewart Leonard Nimoy right. composite exactly character. and then you know the other one which honestly this one we should do but uh, have you ever seen Star Trek Insurrection you know I haven't but you made the case that it's, it's right the, wing the most right wing of oh them yeah, all. yeah hell yeah. yeah and it's just like it suffers from all of the worst tropes of like fan service movies where it's like oh yeah, all these characters that you've spent like hundreds of hours with, what if we just like reduce them to a handful of like canned lines? Wouldn't you like that, you pigs? Anyway, <laughs> Galaxy Quest. Well, the first thing that struck me about Galaxy Quest is it comes from a different time in like sci-fi franchise, I don't know, monetization. Like conventions used to mean a different kind of thing. Star Trek conventions used to mean a different kind of thing. Like there was a famous episode of Saturday Night Live that William Shatner hosted in 85 or 86. He, he plays himself at a Star Trek convention and the climax of the sketch is he yells, you all need to get a life. Right. And that was like him doing that was a mean before memes were a right. thing. Like, Where now if you go to a like fucking, you know, Comic-Con or something, it's all like, it's literally just A-list actors and stuff because the whole culture is made out of this now. But not only A-list actors, but like, I remember going to Toronto Fan Expo in 2017, a couple months before Adam West died. And Adam West, a warrior of the convention circuit. Yeah, a, I bet. A, a guy who was, you know, wearing that fucking Batman costume at RV conventions back in the 80s. You know. What a trooper. He was there in 2017 you know at the biggest hall in in the place greeted like a king like those franchises the ones that have endured like batman and star trek 
they're not nerdy stuff anymore. Adam West, Shatner also. Like when Shatner goes to a convention now, he's not the William Shatner of 1986, even though I guess that William Shatner was still starring in movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, like Star Trek was Star Trek was a huge brand, but it was also like a niche brand yeah. uh, simultaneously. But it was coded as something very different. You know, Star Trek conventions were coded as something different. But well, now Shatner's like a rock star at those conventions. Yeah, and I mean, frankly, like, you know, obviously I don't want to make this into the Star Trek episode. But I mean, one thing I would say is that, you know, like the J.J. Abrams uh, Star Treks and things like that, if you compare that to like The Next Generation or Deep Space Nine or whatever, those other ones, frankly, are like sort of weird and cerebral in a way that like, I mean, now they're now like the J.J. Abrams movies just look like Marvel films to me. And, you know, there's all kinds of other problems with them just in that, like, I don't know, they're not really taking place in the same universe or anything like that. So they don't feel like a supplement to what already existed, which like in the 90s when there was you had like the next generation you had deep space nine you had voyager those were all sort of taking place around the same time in this kind of universe and so if you're somebody who enjoys lore and sort of existing in like a big universe and finding things out about it like that made them very satisfying you know viewing but the fact is that kind of stuff you can't monetize it in the way that you can monetize like a jj abrams blockbuster or something so now it's just all like they don't just look like marvel films like all the kind of like weird cerebral like deadpan brent spiner banter or whatever it's just it's just now it's they're just well, yeah. they're just so they're just soy banting yeah the, the people who own star trek look at it and say we can make this a star wars level franchise yeah. if we if we make it more appealing to more people i yeah. mean it used to be just understood that this is a this is nerdy stuff for nerds yeah. also like the people who wrote the older Star Trek stuff like you know they were different kinds of people than who write it now I mean people who write it now are casting Stacey Abrams as the president of the galaxy or whatever like the ones who wrote it back in the 50s and 60s were you know shell-shocked communists (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) I mean so uh, one of the newer series is called uh, Strange New Worlds and like look I've only seen one episode of it but I don't think I'll be watching anymore I swear to God somebody was like oh like I know you don't like the stuff they've been doing recently with Star Trek but this one it's kind of like a throwback it's kind of reverting to like some of the stuff that's good and then you know i i I started watching it and you know you're watching the credits roll and stuff and i was like okay like yeah like they're it kind of just looks like uh you know they're doing a higher production values like vintage star trek and by the end of it i was pulling my hair out because i swear to god i am not making this up the episode ended with january 6th footage where they're screening january 6th footage on this alien planet that's too polarized and they're explaining uh oh yeah like we had world war three because because of polarization apparently like january 6th led up to world war three so that's where it's at these days not interested so yeah galaxy quest it's about the cast the aging cast of a star trek like tv show called galaxy quest you've got tim allen as jason nesmith who uh, was basically the shatner sigourney weaver as gwen demarco who is the uh, the lady on the show she's, she's like ohura in the original series alan rickman as yeah the, the sort of spock but also british tony shalhoub is he bones like what's uh yeah it's sort of a bones scotty kind of composite i guess like he's he's an engineer but he's also like sardonic like mccoy there's Daryl Mitchell as Tommy, who is a child actor on the show. So that, I mean, clear clear riff on sort of not the original series, but the TNG. That's like Wesley Crusher, I guess. And the other character on the well, show. By the way, Will Wheaton still has me blocked on Twitter. Uh, and the other character, uh, Sam Rockwell plays, you know, the, the film begins at a Galaxy Quest convention and Sam Rockwell plays the generic he's the, he's new the... crewman, crewman number six, who, you know, every episode as on the old Star Trek, you know, there's a new crewman yeah. who is the first. He's the red shirt. He's the guy who dies. They they beam down to the planet, and it's like the away team will consist of, you know, myself, uh, Mr. Spock, and, uh, and, yeah, like Ensign Ricky or something. So at this convention, the the players are put on the board. We see the tensions that have grown between this crew. Much like the real Shatner, Tim Allen's character is something of an egotist whose ego is uh, a cover for his own insecurity, his own... Clearly done nothing else with his life, but he's also made more money than the other ones. Which... you know, unfair to the writer of uh, uh, Cyber War. What were those books that Shatner wrote? <laughs> Wait, hang on. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna verify what this was. William Shatner books. I'm googling. Right, Tech War. He wrote a series of books called Tech War. Uh, also starred on T.J. Hooker and uh, had a prolific uh, musical career. So you know, <laughs> William Shatner. 
a man of many talents. You know, the Tim Allen character is a, a scenery chewer. He clearly had some sort of failed relationship with the Sigourney Weaver character. And those resentments linger to this day. Now, at this convention, Tim Allen is approached by Mathazar, played by Enrico Colantoni. Enrico- and, and his entourage, which among other people includes Rain Wilson in what I think was his first film role. As well as a young Missy Pyle, uh, who you've all seen in movies. They are an alien race called the Thermians who have built their society, built their space force from watching what they believe are historic documents, these recordings of an actual crew, episodes of Galaxy Quest. And they think Tim Allen really was the leader of this actual crew. And so they abduct him, take them to outer space, hoping hoping that he'll be able to lend his expertise to fight their own alien invasion. Yeah, I mean, they're, ba- they're basically facing annihilation at the hands of some alien called Ceres. And Tim Allen goes up on the spaceship he just thinks it's like a job and then he's just like really impressed with like the bridge setup and stuff and like yeah the makeup on this alien looks amazing and so inevitably you know he and the crew just get drawn into this and then they have to use their expertise from uh you know playing these people on the on the show to become them and you know it's kind of an earnest and corny plot i guess in some ways but i, I honestly think it works well, uh, it's, very it's well quite, it's i think it's very funny. well executed it's very funny it's very funny i think the midsection of the movie you know I, like if i have any complaint about this movie it's it's kind of a one joke movie and i feel the midsection stretching it out a little bit i, I do think the cast is uniformly good oh man Rickman's alan rickman great. is so good and you Sigourney know what? weaver is so good tim allen never better well yeah it's funny i was thinking like uh t- and actually i got a story about tim allen's role in this movie in a second but revisiting it like oh you know tim allen it's really it's kind of a drag to have him you got like sigourney weaver and alan rickman just like two of the greats and then you got fucking tim allen and i was like well no it, it makes perfect sense to cast him in this because the whole point he's is, a medium talent yeah, yeah you cast like a guy who has this kind of sort of hyperbolic anti-charisma like the one William Shatner had particularly in his later years um, but you know what I found out apparently the original I guess director of this movie was going to be Harold Ramis and then it was like he discovered or like he learned that like they wanted to cast Tim Allen and he like stormed out and he didn't want to <laughs> I guess so he funny. didn't want to work with Tim That's Allen so, funny. Uh, so then apparently on, on well, the IMDB t- trivia it says he later he later watched the film and, and said that he thought Tim Allen's performance was pretty good. Yeah, good on you, Tim. You proved the haters wrong yet again. <laughs> Your commander is on deck. Ha <laughs> ha. Wow, that smog is thick today, huh? Am I too late for Alexander's panic attack? Apparently not. You know, you should get that looked at. <laughs> I was mostly charmed by it as a relic of, yeah, this particular, this this different time in, in fan culture. You know, this movie came out two or three years after, and I'm sure was heavily informed by the documentary Trekkies, the definitive film about Star Trek conventions. You know, another movie I watched as a kid and did not really understand. I remember like being really perplexed on the VHS uh, release of that on the cover. It had a quote where it was like, I don't know, from Rolling Stone or something, and it was like, the greatest laugh generator since there's something about Mary. And I would always Ugh. look at that and I'd be like, this isn't a funny movie. I don't understand. Because, you know, when you're a kid and you watch that movie and you like you like the stuff, you're just like, oh, these people have like all the toys and stuff. That's really cool. And then you watch the movies as an adult and you're like, oh, this couple that runs that they've turned their entire dental practice into Star Trek. Those people are nuts. Or the lady who was called the test or. She was she, called she to was be a juror for, for jury in duty. the Whitewater trial, and then she's just telling the filmmaker. She's telling Denise Crosby, you know, the actress who uh, plays Tasha Yar on the first season, first two seasons of The Next Generation. She's just telling her really earnestly, like, "I will wear my uniform just as any other officer in the military where there's." And it's like, okay, but you're not in the military. And, you know, <laughs> she's got she's got people that she games with online, basically, yeah. who she larps with, and it's like she, she, and they're her crew, and she's <laughs> sending a message to her crew that you take your uniform seriously. In this movie, there's. Uh, the character played by a young Justin Long, you know, the kid. Yeah, he's uh, great. I loved his I loved his performance. The kid who's like an expert in all of the ships on the Galaxy Quest show. And he's clearly derived from you remember Gabriel. That? Yeah, yeah, that kid from Trekkies. Yeah, well, here's a question for you. Well, have you seen Trekkies, too? I have not because it's actually pretty good. And Gabriel I was made, I don't know, 15 or 20 years after the first one. Maybe not that long. It's 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 Gabriel's an adult and he he's in it and he's like grown up. And it's it's really interesting they're showing him footage from the first movie and he's clearly very embarrassed by it but to Gabriel's credit he actually ended up working on I think it was Star Trek Nemesis or something so somebody who turned his childhood hobby into like a legit career honestly respect for the guy 
So I was trying to think, why did people want us to talk about this movie? And I think a lot of it has it be, to be— Beat out Air Force One. Yeah, which is a really obvious choice. We'll have to do that at some point. Well, I think a lot of it is, first of all, people like this movie yeah. uh, and, and want to watch it with us. It's good. It's and, fun. And, and I think that's great. Yeah. But secondly, I think it's also because we talk so much about IP movies. Yeah. And this came out in 1999. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man came out in 2002. You know, this movie came out a couple months after The Phantom Menace. The Avengers came Came out in 2008. I mean, these were seismic events in the way that movies are made and distributed and planned, the way that franchises are conceived. And also, like, this was happening. I mean, Star Wars was massive. But aside from, like, the Batman movies, a lot of the comic book movies that were made in the 90s didn't succeed. There was Superman with Christopher Reeve, and there were the Batman movies. And then Sam Raimi's Spider-Man really began the comic book movie as, like, the dominant blockbuster form. It took over from the kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger blockbusters, the Sylvester Stallone type stuff that was so prominent in the 90s, or like Independence Day, movies like that. And then by the end of the 2000s, nerd culture had become the monoculture. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I feel like I feel like if you look at something like the original Superman or the original Batman, they're not positioned as comic book movies. They're positioned as like crossover. These aren't just for nerds. These are these are movies like with grown-ups who like fuck and like they don't even yeah. really they don't pay attention to the source material yeah, that the, much. The, the, you know? the ancient Greeks had uh their great epics and you ever you ever think that maybe these are our version of like Homer's Iliad? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> we'll put a pin in that. Maybe return to that. <laughs> the people who made those movies didn't really think about the fans. They weren't worshipful, at least, of the, of the source material. And then, you know, Marvel Studios begins making its own movies. And, you know, those later movies are kind of like all about fan service. I don't know. I think people recognize that this is a movie. Galaxy Quest is a movie that's from a very different time when both audiences and Hollywood and the entertainment industry, a very different time in their relationship with fan culture. Yeah, I mean, I get and I guess if there's any kind of like reading of like, what's the thesis of this movie? It's a film that I think just kind of very softly wants to celebrate, I don't know, people who are just nerdily into stuff you know like who are the thermians right they're like the ultimate fans they've built like they've modeled their entire civilization on this uh this tv show i also think there's something sweet about the arc of the alan rickman character who you know as we join him much like patrick stewart he's uh he's a shakespeare he's like i played richard the third and he's yeah. so he's so frustrated that this is what his career has become this reminds me of this great documentary i love it so much it's the captains directed by william shatner <laughs> which is actually my favorite star trek thing. It was this documentary that Shatner made in 2008, 2009 or so, where he goes around and interviews all the people who had played Star Trek captains up to that point, you know, from Voyager Enterprise. He interviews Chris Pine as well. And the movie... Stay in your lane, Chris Pine. Well, the movie has no thesis. Its ostensible thesis is, wow, isn't it amazing we all went on this journey? But its actual thesis is William Shatner is deeply insecure and, and he, want, he wants to go around and like... He's like, I'm basically... Avery Brooks and Patrick Stewart and well, it's Kate like, Mulgrew it's like all people care about and like all these people up to and including <laughs> Scott Bakula they've been recognized as more legitimate as actors than he has on some level and even Chris Pine has come in he's playing his character in a more expensive movie he's yeah. younger he's better looking yeah. <laughs> he's dealing with that like how come Nimoy got to got to come back for the J.J. Abrams movie how come I didn't get to come back it's fascinating and his scenes with Patrick Stewart fucking rock these guys they are two hams you know they are, they are two to change metaphors they are two stallions just in a race together to see who can out ham the other one to mix metaphors now and this this great duel between the two of them at the end where Stuart breaks down all his defenses and shatner goes on this monologue about the feelings of insecurity he had the feelings of like competition he had with nimoy and you know it it, it took me years when people would stop me on the street and say beam me up Scotty to, to trust them I thought they were joshing me and and Patrick <laughs> some of them were probably to and be Patrick fair. Stewart Patrick Stewart goes when I look back on my career of all the characters I've played Macbeth Hamlet Shakespeare I know that when I die the first line of my obituary will be that I was Captain Jean-Luc Picard 
and I couldn't be happier. <laughs> and like he says it so hamily, and Shatner responds with, "This is the gift you have given me today." <laughs> you know, but it is sweet. Like it is actually unironically sweet that I, I don't doubt that Stuart feels that way. Mm. And it's you know you don't you don't get to choose your legacy. You're lucky if you have a legacy. And, and he's he's starring as Picard on the eponymous Picard show right now. Yeah, yeah. and I mean it's great that he. And you know it's great that the Alan Rickman character too comes around to uh, appreciating his legacy because it is a great one. The Alan Rickman character is like a running gag with him that I never stopped finding funny where like I guess his slogan had something to do with like by Grapthar's hammer like I will avenge you or something and you know every appearance he makes he has to say this and then yeah I mean it's a testament to what a great uh, actor Alan Rickman was that by the time you get to the end of this movie and he's saying it earnestly I don't know it, it actually carries some emotional weight he actually pulls it off love that guy miss seeing him in movies you mentioned it being sort of an example of uh, you know a film from a different time where you kind of could do this sort of movie and it wasn't just about creating like a massive sprawling franchise and it wasn't even you know directly I mean this isn't a Star Trek movie it's just kind of a like soft you know gentle satire and I mean I guess this ties into the conversation we're having on our other episode this week yes patreon.com slash Michael and us but I mean you know you look at a movie like this and I mean someone wrote an original script that's very funny and you know they're they're clearly like a fan or they're familiar with kind of the Star Trek universe but it's not just like winking at you it's not just doing fan service like you know it's an original movie and the result is very charming and funny I mean I could be wrong about this but I don't think you see films like this now because it would not occur to a studio to sort of green light a movie like this I don't know how many scripts like this there are floating around because now it'd just be like oh yeah well we're not gonna do some middle budget you know satire like this we're gonna spend 150 million dollars to make a movie that's you know based on the existing Star Trek IP or something it doesn't even like look like Star Trek or whatever it doesn't feel like Star Trek but we're gonna make a ton of money on it and so I don't know, for me, that was what was so striking about uh, revisiting this, you know, this object that I was obsessed with as a kid for a few months. So many years later, it was a weird throwback to a time in the late 1990s where, you know, your like charming little middle brow comedy was actually like an original thing and wasn't part of some, you know, big sprawling universe. And it wasn't just this kind of this hollow matrix of like winks and nudges and self-reference. And I don't know, by, by Grapthar's hammer, we, we deserve to have that again. Picture yourself on a train in a station with plasticine porters, with looking glass ties. Suddenly, someone is there at the turnstile. A girl with kaleidoscope eyes. 